Then came 1991 and the wars broke out in the former Yugoslavia. You had the Bosnian Serb army again firebombing the National Library with up to two million books destroyed. And you had hundreds upon hundreds of mosques, Catholic churches, and historic buildings targeted. And especially the library uh, upset me. I mean, there's no better way to upset a librarian than to burn a library. And I tried to get um, various professional associations to take a stand on it. And uh, they didn't. It's, it's as if this was a political act, which it wasn't. It was, it was a war crime. And so again, um, I became a mad librarian. <laughs> Welcome to the Harvard Islamica podcast. I'm Harry Bastramaja. And I'm Mariam Kazni. We're honored to be joined today by Andras Riedelmeyer, scholar of Ottoman studies, writer and editor, who served as the Aga Khan bibliographer of Islamic art and architecture at Harvard's Fine Arts Library from 1985 until his retirement in 2020. In that time, Andras built up the Fine Arts Library's Islamic collection, which has become North America's largest collection of materials on the art and architecture of the Islamic world. He has served as an invaluable resource for Islamic studies researchers at Harvard and worldwide, and a collaborator in the production of Muqarnas, an annual on the visual cultures of the Islamic world, published by the Aga Khan Program for Islamic Art and Architecture at Harvard. In addition to his work at Harvard, Andras distinguished himself as a cultural heritage historian on the Ottoman Arab Balkans, documenting the destruction of cultural monuments, libraries, and archives in the wars and ethnic cleansing that took place in Bosnia and Kosovo in the 1990s. In 2018, the Middle East Librarians Association granted Andras the David H. Partington Award for his contributions to the field of Middle East librarianship, librarianship in general, and the world of scholarship. Welcome, Andras. We're so excited to finally have you join us. My pleasure. Great to have you. To get us started, we'd like to know a little bit more about uh, your background and and what brought you to the United States uh, from your native Hungary and and to study Ottoman history and uh, Middle Eastern languages. It's a bit of a complicated story, but uh, to give you the short version, I grew up in Hungary um, until the age of nine. Um, My father was uh, an architect who worked for the Institute for the Protection of Historical Monuments. And um, I have childhood memories of accompanying him to sites and holding the other end of the measuring tape. Um, Hungary at the time uh, was uh, under Soviet occupation. And in 1956, there was a popular revolution against the Soviets, uh, which was then brutally suppressed. Um, We had no choice but to leave because my father had been elected by his colleagues to uh, head the workers committee at his place of work. And he knew that once things settled down, there would be consequences. And so we became among, you know, one family among many, uh, about 200,000 people left out of a country of 10 million. So quite a substantial number. We spent time in refugee camps in Austria and eventually settled in West Germany. We stayed in West Germany for four years, four and a half years. And um, I learned German and attended a, uh, gymnasium, you know, the, one of those classical institutions with lots of Latin and Greek um, and, uh, you know, very little science. And um, then in 1961, my father was encouraged to apply for nationalization as a German citizen, and he was turned down without reason given. Germany uh, doesn't automatically grant 
naturalization. He can, in fact, be born in Germany and not be a German citizen. So 1961 was also international refugee year and the US uh, allowed a certain number of refugees who were still stateless as we were to uh, immigrate under that uh, visa. And so we ended up in Chicago um, in part because uh, my father had an old uh, university friend who had ended up in the US as an architect in Chicago and he found him a job. And um, I learned English. It was my sixth language at that point. And um, graduated from high school in Chicago, went on to the University of Chicago. And when I uh, started the university, I was quite sure that I was going into the natural sciences. And then I had a really exciting uh, professor for classics. And I already had some Latin and Greek. And so I thought I might become a classics major, but uh, everybody was scared to death of this guy. He sort of ate his students for breakfast, you know. And so um, I decided it might be safer to move up in time and do Byzantine studies, you know, same Latin and Greek, um, but different professors. And uh, that was into my junior year and then disaster struck. Uh, Chicago only had two Byzantinists. One was Peros Rionis. He got hired away by UCLA. And uh, his colleague, Walter Kage, brilliant Byzantinist, um, had a medical breakdown. And suddenly there was nobody teaching Byzantine studies. So I was in Byzantine studies for not quite one academic year. And so what comes after Byzantines? Ottomans. And so that's how I ended up in Ottoman studies. Now, there were other reasons too. Hungary has as part of its history, uh, its connection with the Ottoman Empire, uh, which occupied Hungary for 150 years. And so it was familiar territory. It's not like I suddenly switched the Japanese or something like that. So that was very exciting. I um, learned more languages, uh, Persian, Turkish, and uh, did my bachelor's thesis, uh, my BA thesis on uh, Bosnia. And so ended up in graduate school at Princeton. And uh, Princeton then as it is now was a great place to do Ottoman studies. Uh, they had good professors, they had uh, an excellent library and um, so I did my graduate studies there, ended up getting um, a Fulbright dissertation abroad fellowship. And so um, went off to Turkey to do my dissertation research. And I ended up staying in Turkey on various grants and also teaching English and odd jobs for almost four years. My Turkish got lots better. I got to travel throughout the Middle East, uh, Iran, Syria, the Balkans. And uh, I might have even stayed on doing more research, but then uh, my dad passed away and I decided to come back to the States. And um, here I was with uh, ABD all about dissertation. And suddenly the employment prospects didn't look so good. As you know, the area studies centers really took off in the early 60s. And the first crop of graduates from that whole era was just entering the job market in the 70s. And nobody was retiring and no new centers were being founded. And so there were no job opportunities. And um, then suddenly this program came um, online at Harvard, um, the Alcom program founded in 79. Um, I had moved to Cambridge because my wife, uh, then my girlfriend was in graduate school in, in this area. Then um, good luck struck for a change. 
the, the first librarian, first bibliographer for the Elkham program, uh, moved on. Her husband got a job with the State Department and she moved to Washington. And uh, I got hired, not because I had a lot of experience as a librarian, but because I knew the area, I knew the languages. And uh, that was in 1985. And until the end of 2020, I held that job. And I enjoyed it. I really did. Um, in a way, it gives you the best of both worlds. You can do the research. You can help people who are invariably very grateful. And then they have the hard job of actually writing it all up. So that's the long story of how I got from Hungary to uh, Harvard. That's, that's great. Just, uh, just wondering, when you were a student at the University of Chicago uh, studying Ottoman history, was, was that during the time of uh, Halil and Naldrik? Well, yes and no. Uh, actually, when I was an undergraduate, Halil and Naldrik was not there yet. Oh. Um, but uh, you, you had uh, Fahiriz, who was a, a great historian of Turkish language and literature. You had Richard Chambers. Um, you had a number of good people. And then after I came back from Turkey, I was formally still enrolled at Princeton, but I was living in Chicago with my mother. And I got to sit in on Hollywood and Algic seminars for several years. So informally, I was a student, yes. Yeah, that's great. That's great. So you, you talked about how you came to, uh, to Cambridge uh, and, and Harvard in 1985 and working with uh, the Aga Khan program. Let's talk a little bit more about the history of uh, the Islamic uh, fine arts collections uh, here at Harvard and the Aga Khan's <laughs> gift to the university. You know, being one of the, I guess, technically the second Aga Khan bibliographer, um, I'm sure you have an intimate knowledge of, of sort of the history there. Could you tell us a little bit about, you know, why this gift and, and, and why Harvard, uh, but what was the need? What, what, um, okay, what so uh, a quick introduction to the Ar Khan. His Highness the Ar Khan went to Harvard. He was Harvard class of 1959. He's also the 49th hereditary imam of the Shia is Ismaili community. And um, 20 years after he graduated from Harvard, he was persuaded to establish a program both at Harvard and MIT. Um, this came as a result of several things. One is he noticed that throughout the Islamic world, really from the Maghreb to Malaysia, uh, everything was starting to look the same. You know, you couldn't tell whether you were in Houston or Kuala Lumpur. There was nothing intrinsically local or Islamic among the architecture that was being built and that the historical heritage was being neglected. And so uh, he thought it would be a good thing to have two leading institutions, Harvard and MIT, uh, run a program on Islamic art, architecture, and urbanism. And the division was as follows. Harvard would do art history, architectural history, uh, gardens, uh, and, muse and museum studies. Uh, MIT would do the practice of architecture and the teaching of architecture and urbanism. And so it would be a two-pronged approach. And he was criticized at the time of why don't you set this up someplace in the Islamic world? And the idea was that these universities had the resources to really do a serious job and then people from the Islamic world would come to Harvard, would come to MIT and take back the knowledge with them. So people teaching in architectural schools in Pakistan and Jordan uh, in many other places are all graduates of the program at this stage. 
uh, and uh, increasingly with the benefit of technology, of course, uh, uh, the resources themselves are also being shared. So that's in short the program. The program has many aspects. One is that uh, students get very generous scholarships. They get travel grants. There's a publication series of which the longest lasting one has been Mukarnos, the annual on Islamic art and architecture, which has been renamed actually Mukarnas, an annual of the visual cultures of the Islamic world. Because it's recognized that, you know, we're talking about a multiplicity of cultures and about intercultural influences. Thank, thank you. Yeah. So about a little bit more about the, the work of the, the Aga Khan program here at Harvard uh, and how it sort of connects with the, the Fine Arts Library. Um, there's a documentation center. Okay, and so part of the program was establishing documentation centers at both MIT and Harvard. Again, with the respective focus of the two Harvard more historical, MIT more practice oriented. And the technical cutoff is early 20th century. Uh, you know, once international style comes in, it, it becomes different. But uh, in the case of Harvard, one thing that really made a difference is Harvard has an in-depth historical collection. Harvard is, uh, you know, among the oldest library, uh, oldest uh, higher education institutions in North America, but also has the one of the oldest libraries. Disaster befell Harvard's library just 10 years before the American Revolution. It burned down. And the only books that survived were 400 books that happened to be checked out at the time. But as soon as the fire went out, there were campaigns to rebuild the library with donations and purchases. And one of the, among the first things they bought or were given were things that documented the Islamic world. So for example, in the Fine Arts Library, one of our most precious and oldest books is the first illustrated book on Palmyra in the Syrian desert. An Englishman named Wood traveled to Palmyra with a, an Italian engraver in tow and um, did site drawings and then brought, back, uh, brought them back and published them at his own expense. And they turned into a bestseller of the period. And within six years of its publication, Harvard had a copy. And so things got built up. Now Harvard established an art museum in the 1890s, the Fog Art Museum. And from the beginning, the Fog Art Museum collected uh, not only works of art, but also documentation on art. So one of the things they collected was photographs of the Middle East, of which they had thousands by the beginning of the 20th century. So these were sort of the foundations that began. And eventually, uh, in 1969, Harvard hired uh, Oleg Grabar as professor of Islamic art. Uh, and uh, he attracted uh, a group of students, and he was also instrumental in the founding of the Alakam program as well. And his presence also boosted the library's collecting activities, both in terms of publications and images. And so my job as, as a bibliographer and my predecessor's job uh, was to uh, build on and augment this collection to uh, facilitate access to it and provide reference. And uh, because it was a unique center, um, a great part of my job had to do with outreach. You know, people would contact me from overseas or from uh, museums uh, in various parts of the world. Uh, asking questions, and I would provide reference advice. They, they would come and uh, use our library directly, 
or we could send them scans. It became a worldwide resource. Thank you. Yeah, it seems uh, to be quite the resource for, for students and scholars worldwide. So thank you for, for sharing that history with us. Yeah. The other thing uh, happened is the kind of questions asked mm -hmm. by uh, art and architectural historians evolved over time. When I arrived in 1985, the department, the academic department uh, that uh, was our principal customer at the library uh, was called the Fine Arts Department and its focus was on the great works of art. And uh, now it's evolved into something much broader than that. It's, it's visual culture. So everything from uh, Hodge paintings on uh, Egyptian walls to uh, you know, propaganda art and so forth, all functions as visual culture. Also, it used to be that it looked at uh, sort of the prime examples of pure style. You know, this, this is a Mamluk building par excellence. This is a Mughal building par excellence. Now we're looking much more into the contact zones. You know, how do arts and cultures influence each other? What does it mean when a Mughal painter copies a uh, Portuguese print, that kind of thing. And so, uh, and similarly, what is Orientalism in art? Is it uh, a technology of stereotyping and oppression? Is it something else? And similarly, how does uh, the Islamic world perceive visual in visual terms, the West? And so, uh, in many ways, the, the field has uh, greatly evolved. Thank you for telling us about that history. So, um, as you mentioned, you've been a librarian at Harvard since 1985. And so I was wondering if you can tell us about how the libraries and research have changed since then in terms of technology and the methods for collection, preservation, and research. And how would you say that these changes have affected Islamic studies in particular? Okay, well, when I started in 1985, the primary way of finding books was still a card catalog. Um, you know, there was no internet. Uh, there was no online catalog. And uh, eventually by the 1990s, that changed. Uh, one of the huge projects was uh, uh, to digitize our R and Wideners, in fact, the whole library's uh, cataloging system. And um, that made it more accessible, but in some ways also less accessible. Um, and I'll tell you why, in terms of Middle East studies, have you ever been on the top floor of Widener? Well, especially not these days, but uh, um, the top floor of Widener houses the Middle East Division, uh, which is my colleagues who regularly order books from, uh, you know, Cairo, Damascus, uh, Tehran, all these places. And uh, their card catalog used to be in Arabic script, which made it easier for people to search it. And then once we went online, suddenly for a long time, well into the 2000s, the catalog couldn't handle non-Western scripts. And so suddenly you had to become a romanization expert to decipher an Arabic title. So in some ways, this made things more accessible. In other ways, it diminished access. And to this very day, new records are generally generated in bilingual form, both Arabic script and transliteration. But um, that leaves a huge amount of records that you know, were never really transferred. And so you have to search both to get everything. So uh, that's one. Uh, the other huge 
difference is um, digitization. Now, digitization was in its infancy in the early 90s. It was expensive and everybody thought that uh, memory would cost too much for any significant portion of a library collection to get digitized. You know, now we think differently. Uh, there are different technologies. You can store data in a cloud and um, digitization is being pushed at high speed. The problem there is also that um, digitization to be usable requires um, machine readable text. You can't search a digitized text unless there is optical character recognition. And optical character recognition for Arabic script is still only barely usable. You know, there are many problems. One is different styles of script. Um, you know, something that's Arabic TypeScript, you can do reasonably well on. Get yourself a uh, lithograph, for example. Um, you know, suddenly the, the script style is different and there's the layout is not predictable because it's all over the margins, you know, all the marginal annotations. And you try to OCR that, you, you, don't, you may not get very far. And, you know, that's 30 years into the so-called digital future. So we still have a ways to go. And that's despite huge amounts of money having been invested both by governments and by various companies uh, into OCR. Libraries, of course, um, don't have the kind of clout that any of these have. And so um, they're pretty far down on the pecking order. But uh, yeah, that's a, a continual challenge. Uh, on the other hand, um, you can now, if you get past the copyright lawyers, share um, digitized books, digitized images, and uh, that has really opened up the world greatly. In the early years of the Arcom program, we had various schemes to try to share our image collections. We would duplicate sets of 35 millimeter slides and send them out to various institutions in the Islamic world. Uh, then um, moving on a little bit, we would uh, record them on uh, big DVDs uh, but all of these still had a very limited reach. Now we're at a point that uh, ARCnet, which is run through the uh, Archon Documentation Center at MIT, um, has open access images for thousands of Islamic uh, monuments, which are freely accessible to anyone who has access to the internet. So the world has gotten bigger in that way. And, you know, even though we cannot share our whole library because of technical and copyright issues, um, if people write in with questions, uh, we can often give them, you know, the page they want, uh, you know, very quickly via a scanner and an email. So libraries have changed in other ways, they have uh, stayed the same. Uh, you know, the internet as I've just described has brought many changes. One of the very unfortunate changes of the internet is that it's not stable. You know, if you do research and you have a URL for a website that was still functioning quite well in the early 2000s, odds are it's no longer there. So in, in some ways, the physical book, both the books that have never been digitized and might not be digitized for a long time simply because it's economically unfeasible or technically unfeasible, and even the digitized books, it's very useful to have a backup in terms of a physical book. Think again of somebody does research. If you do research in the visual arts, what do you need? You need texts, 
you need images and you need to compare all of these all at once. Okay, it's wonderful to have a digitized image, but unless you have 20 laptops in front of you, how do you compare 20 images? You know, even if you have a plasma screen on your wall, which most people don't, um, you can't crowd them in there the, the way you could, um, you know, just laying out photographs on a table. And so physical libraries remain very much a part of that world, which is why the fine arts library is currently in a space that used to be the economics library. The economists now use Dow Jones databases. They don't really need the physical books that much anymore. But in the visual arts, it's still very central. We were also wondering if you could tell us a bit about some of your favorite pieces of Harvard's Islamic collections, whether books, manuscripts, artwork. Part of the fun of uh, being a librarian uh, for the Archon program was to have these resources for acquisition. I, over the years, I, I had a fairly generous acquisitions budget. So on the one hand, I would buy things that were currently published, but I would also go after the occasional rare or unusual item. And the, the fun with that was, is first of all, you know, just the notion that you could get this thing, which nobody or hardly anybody else had, and being able to afford to get it. And the moment it would arrive, you'd open it, you'd invite your colleagues to all take a look. And, um, you know, I still remember one was this uh, very spectacular uh, panorama of the entire Bosphorus, Bosphorus being the strait that uh, uh, connects the Sea of Marmara with the Black Sea, with Constantinople, Istanbul, and its suburbs all along it. And in uh, the 1840s and 50s, there was uh, a Maltese artist who was living in Istanbul and who had uh, gotten in, in with the government and was teaching drawing at the military academy. Thing happened in the 1850s, um, the Crimean War, the Ottoman Empire with France, Britain, and uh, the Kingdom of Sardinia, which later became Italy, uh, allied against uh, Russia. The fighting was mostly in the Crimea, but Istanbul suddenly had this huge influx of foreigners. Florence Nightingale tended to the wounded and British officers attended the parties at the British legation and so forth. And when they were heading home, they all wanted expensive souvenirs. And so this artist came upon this wonderful scheme. He did draw careful drawings of the entire length of the Bosphorus with the allied fleet in it. And um, he then uh, commissioned a, a lithography firm in Paris to um, produce this publication. And the publication had a fold out that was, I forget the exact length, but it was uh, well over eight feet long. And uh, you wonder what this is good for, except for a British officer in 1855 to show to the folks back home. Well, what it's good for is uh, already several theses have used these, this, which were looking at things like um, landscape architecture in that period. These are areas that have since changed beyond recognition. Areas have been built up, entire mountainsides have been moved, and this preserves it. And I just remember when it first arrived, I spread it out on the table. It, 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 we have a set of tables in our reading room that we could push together and it barely fit. And it was a marvel, I mean, uh, Students came in and they, they were just flabbergasted. That's, that's neat. It's, it's, it's interesting to see how, uh, to hear how um, 
something that was essentially uh, a souvenir <laughs> uh, is is uh, plays a critical role in, in understanding landscape the history of landscape architecture in the Ottoman yeah. Empire. That's fascinating. Yeah. So we have other stories through lots of them. I mean. Uh, one of the, uh, a very small book we have. Normally in the Fine Arts Library, we don't collect original manuscripts. Manuscripts mm -hmm. generally go to Houghton Library, but we do have a few. And one of them is this uh, uh, book uh, on um, the listenedness of images in Islam. And what it is, it was a doctoral thesis at King Fuad I University in Cairo, hmm. produced in 1941. Now remember 1941, World War I is raging. I mean, World War II is raging. The British army is in occupation of Egypt. Rommel has just landed in North Africa and he's about to head to Al-Amain. And the Egyptians are resentful of the British. And so the British in turn, in order to uh, cut down on anti-British propaganda, do various things. They impose strict censorship, but they also collect uh, Arabic typewriters because that was one way of quickly duplicating things. And so um, this poor guy had just finished his thesis and he obviously couldn't find the typewriter to to produce copies for his committee. And so he hired a calligrapher and um, had it nicely engrossed, you know, written out. And it popped up on the uh, antiquarian book market. You know, probably no more than uh, five or six copies were ever produced for members of his committee who have all since gone to their reward. That's quite neat. And we have that. And uh, right, right now, um, we have a professor who's teaching an undergraduate course on images in Islam. And some of the students know Arabic. And uh, this would be a great thing for them to look at. Yeah, certainly. It sounds like it. It's very neat. So, Prince Al Walid uh, in 2005, when he gave his gift to the, to the university to establish the Awali program, uh, Islamic studies program, as well as um, four professorships here at the university. Um, he also gave money to the Harvard libraries. Okay. For the, yeah, for the, what's now known as the Islamic Heritage Project. Could you tell us a little bit more about that, the project and, and the benefit it, it has provided to both the library and researchers? Okay, well, um, just to backtrack a little bit, uh, among the professorships that were established uh, by uh, the gift from uh, Prince Al-Walid uh, was uh, a second professorship in Islamic art. So basically overnight it doubled the number of permanent faculty members who work full-time on Islamic art. So that was a big boost in general to the field. As far as the Islamic Heritage Project is concerned, I was actually on the committee that uh, was looking at ways of, of uh, best using the uh, donation. And uh, the committee came up with the idea that Harvard has a collection of Islamic manuscripts and uh, antiquarian books from the 19th century. And while it's not the best collection by far in, in North America, you know, places like the Library of Congress or Princeton have more, uh, it is a, a rich and uh, in some ways very unusual collection. It came to Harvard largely as gifts and uh, it had never been properly cataloged and hadn't gotten much use over the years. And uh, so the end result was that uh, we devised the plan to hire project catalogers who would catalog these manuscripts. 
to have the manuscripts uh, undergo preservation review. Many of them were not in great shape and then um, have them digitized and made publicly available. And the project was amazing in its outcome. It uh, produced tremendous amount of material that was not otherwise available in digital form anywhere. Many of the manuscripts are unique or oldest uh, versions of various texts. Um, I know we at the Fine Arts Library contributed various things. Um, I remember one of my purchases was uh, an Ottoman map of the Balkans, for example, that uh, got digitized for this project. So it's a tremendous resource. And it was all done in state-of-the-art digitization with excellent finding aids. It's always a problem when you digitize something, it doesn't make it usable yet. It has to be findable. And you have to be able to navigate within a large data set. And so this provides that you can um, search manuscripts by topic, by title, by language, by date, um, and it's accessible from anywhere in the world. So I, I, I think in that sense, it was a great thing. The other thing that um, the Al-Walid Islamic Heritage uh, Program did is in many ways open up undergraduate education to the Islamic field. Uh, I know that uh, certainly after the Al-Walid program uh, came online, uh, the number of undergraduate classes and undergraduate groups that came to use our collections uh, grew by a tremendous amount. You know, some of it is, is uh, through outreach on our part. Uh, we have these sessions where we would bring, um, you know, some of our most amazing things to these, uh, you know, introductory sessions for first year graduate students or for undergraduates. Um, but, you know, I regularly gave uh, presentations to Professor Ali Asani's course on uh, visual culture and Islamic uh, cultures. So the, the challenge always is not just to assemble these amazing collections, but to connect them to the instruction whether formally through courses or through individual outreach. Yeah, thank you. So you've talked about this next topic on the Ottoman History Podcast, but we would love it if you could also share with our audience a bit about the work you've done beyond your role at Harvard in documenting the deliberate destruction of cultural heritage sites in Bosnia and Herzegovina and Kosovo during the ethnic cleansing of the 1990s. You also served as an expert witness in the UN War Crimes Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. So it would be great to hear about that experience and why you felt that it was so important to document this destruction when so many people had been killed and displaced in those wars. Why was that aspect of maybe cultural ethnic cleansing also so important to document? Well, I, I can tell you a little origin story to begin. Uh, first of all, my very early childhood, uh, I told you my father was uh, working for the Institute for Protection of Monuments in Hungary. Um, this was 10 years after World War II and uh, the destruction of World War II was still all over the place. And the large part of what my father and his uh, institute did was um, to essentially recover and restore things that had been destroyed in the late, in the mid 1940s. Uh, so I, I had some sense of that. I similarly still saw some traces of World War II when I was living in West Germany. But what brought this project into being was, um, as you might remember the first Gulf War in uh, 1990-91, a lot of people were worried that you know, Iraq is the cradle of civilization, it's going to get bombed, and uh, we'll lose, uh, you know, so much of our cultural memory. 
And as a librarian for the Alcom program, I started to get a lot of reference questions about that and about cultural heritage and war and Middle East and the history of cultural preservation or its opposite. And uh, so I was fascinated by the question and I even got a publisher interested. I was going to do a source book specifically on Middle East and cultural heritage preservation. And uh, then came 1991 and the wars broke out in the former Yugoslavia. Now this is after a lifetime of worrying about the world ending in a third world war and nuclear Holocaust. And suddenly the cold war was over um, with hardly any casualties, but you know, in the middle of Europe, war breaks out again. And from the very beginning, I mean, beginning uh, really in the fall of 1991, so exactly 30 years ago, culture was one of the targets in this warfare. Dubrovnik in Croatia, which had been a UNESCO World Heritage Site since 1976, uh, was bombarded from the air, the sea, and the land, and massively uh, damaged, even though it had been declared an open city and they had no military targets in it. That was bad enough, but then the following year, 1992, war broke out, the war spread to Bosnia, and you had massive destruction of cultural heritage all across uh, Bosnia. Again, closely targeted. Uh, you had uh, the Institute of Oriental Studies uh, in Sarajevo uh, being firebombed uh, with incendiary munitions and burning over, over 3,500 manuscripts. Uh, that same summer, you had the Bosnian Serb army again firebombing the National Library with up to 2 million books destroyed. And you had hundreds upon hundreds of mosques, Catholic churches, and historic buildings targeted. And especially the library uh, upset me. I mean, you, there's no better way to upset a librarian than to burn a library. And I tried to get um, various professional associations to take a stand on it. And uh, they didn't. It's, it's as if this was a political act, which it wasn't. It was, it was a war crime. And so when I saw that nobody was doing this, I, I started doing research on my own and started giving lots of talks and eventually became a go-to person on this because nobody else was doing it to the same degree. And so uh, in uh, the mid-90s, uh, while the Bosnian War was still going on, I got invited to testify before the Helsinki Commission of the U.S. Congress uh, on this subject, and then eventually uh, ended up uh, contacting the War Crimes Tribunal in The Hague and saying, would you be interested in data? And they said yes. And in 1999, um, there was the war in Kosovo. NATO intervened. And as soon as the war was over, the UN was put in charge of uh, governing the territory of Kosovo. It's not a large country. It's the size of Connecticut in the U.S. And it, nevertheless, for the United Nations, it was the first time they got to administer anything bigger than their headquarters on the East River in New York. And so I figured that UNESCO would have the culture brief. So I called up UNESCO headquarters in Paris and asked, are you going to do a survey of what happened to cultural heritage? which would be important for many reasons, including um, you know, figuring out a strategy for uh, reconstruction and preservation. And they said, heavens no, we don't do that except by invitation of a member country 
and Yugoslavia, i.e. Belgrade, has not invited us to do this. Of course, they wouldn't have invited them because, you know, they're the ones who did it. And so again, um, I became a mad librarian and <laughs> with the support of the Center for Middle East Studies, I was able to get a small grant from the Packard Humanities Institute. And uh, together with a colleague from Harvard, Andrew Hersher, who was just getting his PhD. Uh, and uh, he's, he was trained architect. Uh, we went off to uh, survey in Kosovo four months after the shooting had stopped. And it was kind of dicey. Uh, there, there were landmines on all the uh, uh, verges of all the shoulders of the roads. Um, there was no electricity. Uh, there was no post office. The phones didn't work. Uh, and there were hundreds and thousands of people on the move trying to get back into the country. In three months, uh, over 800,000 people had been displaced and the survivors were coming back. So it was a kind of a rough thing to do and nothing that I had previously done really prepared me for it, but I couldn't have done it unless I had done research in a library because you can't just go someplace and say, direct me to the nearest ruined monument. Uh, you know, they'll point to a, pi a pile of bricks and you say, what's that? He said, we don't know. So. Uh, what I did uh, between June when the war ended and September when we set out is spent the time at the library collecting information on every single historical monument that had been published about. And this turned out to be very useful. Now, I was dreadfully worried that if I put it on a laptop, somebody would steal the laptop, the laptop would give up the ghost. And since the electricity wasn't good, uh, it would have given up the ghost much quicker than you might have thought. And so I went there with a suitcase filled with photocopies. And this turned out to be terrifically useful because when a building is completely destroyed, um, there are still traces in the ground of where the foundation was. And when something is published, usually there's a measured ground plan somewhere in the publication. So I did that. On the way to Kosovo, we were invited to stop at the UN War Crimes Tribunal in The Hague. And we spent an afternoon there speaking with lawyers and, and investigators who essentially told us what makes for good evidence and what does not. So one thing was that uh, it was very important to try to get documentation of the building or site intact as close to the time of destruction as possible. Because in court, the defendant's first move will be, oh, that fell down before the war. We had nothing to do with it. So if you have a date stamped something that uh, three months before it was ruined, it was still standing, that makes for much better evidence. So things like that. And again, it helped that I worked in the library. Uh, as it happened, there was a journalist in Kosovo who was uh, an enthusiast on Ottoman heritage and who had self-published a number of books on Kosovo's Ottoman heritage in Turkey. And we happened to have his books, which had his address in the back. And so there was no post office, there was no phone, but we went and knocked on his door. And uh, he was generous enough to share his photographs, all of which were date stamped. So we came back and uh, started putting it all into a database quite leisurely. Milosevic, the president of Serbia, was uh, president of Yugoslavia, was still in charge in Belgrade. But then less than two years later, uh, he was overthrown. He was arrested and he was handed over to the UN tribunal. And suddenly we started getting urgent messages from The Hague, give us a detailed report. So we did. And uh, it was a bit dicey because we had all these color photographs and um, we had scans, but uh, we needed to produce 
printouts and color printing in the early 2000s was still a difficult problem, but managed to uh, borrow a color printer from the uh, museum and spent three days running it nonstop and uh, using up uh, dozens of printer cartridges and produced a thick dossier on um, the more than 200 mosques that had been destroyed, uh, the manuscript libraries and the archives and all the other cultural destruction. And then the following spring uh, in April of 2002, uh, I ended up in The Hague, confronted with Milosevic, who was acting as his own attorney and questioning me from 10 feet away. Uh, which was again an experience. Yeah, how, how was that to be questioned? Well, uh, you, as you can imagine, I was nervous as hell. Uh, one, th uh, one thing that uh, oddly enough helped, it was the Hague is on the North Sea. It has terrible winter weather. It rains all the time. And I was trapped in my hotel, and then I couldn't go to court for several days because Milosevic uh, got a cold. And so I had nothing else to do. I could either watch Dutch television or I could just go through my database over and over, which I did. And then once I got into court and uh, it came to the cross-examination, it suddenly dawned on me. I don't know if you've had this experience while in graduate school where you overstudied for a test, where you go in all worried and then you see the question and you say, hey, I know this stuff. And that, that was precisely it. I mean, I, I realized immediately that, you know, all the questions he asked about specific places, I could answer in detail and I, I didn't answer him. It was always directed to the judge. So he would ask, uh, Mr. Riedelmeier, is it really true that, um, you know, this precious building was bombed to smithereens by NATO? And I said, your honors, uh, addressing the judges, um, I've been to this site and this is what I saw. It's not, it doesn't fit the scenario of having been bombed. It has an intact roof. It has an intact front door. Somebody has uh, set a fire inside and did graffiti on the walls. I don't think a Tomahawk missile did this. And so um, he would get upset. Hmm. And we're, you know, a a after uh, a couple of unfortunate American presidents, we know that one of the hazards of having ultimate power is developing the illusion that you can manipulate reality. And Milosevic was like that. I mean, I thought he would get upset at being contradicted. Instead, he was puzzled and he would repeat the same question as in, you know, who are you gonna believe, me or your lying eyes? Yeah, it's yeah, a, he really- a very strange experience. He really believed it. He really believed his, his own narrative. Yeah. And uh, it also helped being a historian because uh, he would say, well, this isn't really uh, Kosovo Albanian heritage, it's, it's Turkish heritage, it's things the Turks forgot to take with them when they left. And we, we know that that's not the case. Yeah. <laughs> not the case. I mean, this is local architecture built for local patrons by local people you know, who may have been participants yeah. in a larger cultural sphere, but. N native, native to the, to the lands, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, very often the same artisan built the churches and the mosques. Which also happened in the, I mean, in, in the Ottoman Empire, uh, not just in the Balkans, I mean. Exactly. In Anatolia as well, yeah. So uh, this went well enough so that the, uh, prosecutors about a few weeks after I returned to the US called me up again and said, well, could you do a similar thing for Bosnia? I said, well, I've been to Bosnia, I've done a bit of documentation, but I haven't done anything systematic. And they said, that's no problem. Um, what are you doing this July? And I said, uh, well, fine, I'll come along. And so um, I spent, uh, 
an entire month traveling through Bosnia, about 4,000 kilometers up and down mountains and uh, doing documentation there. And I ended up testifying in, uh, in nine cases before the UN War Crimes Tribunal and then once before the International Court of Justice. So it turned into a second part-time career. Yeah, that's incredible. Thank you for sharing that with us. So I was wondering, I mean, of course, unfortunately, there are so many conflicts in the world today. What are some of your concerns, but also hopes for the future of cultural preservation in areas of conflict? Uh, the uh, UN War Crimes Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia did some pioneering cases and established precedents, but it's now history. But now there is an international criminal court it was established in the 2000s. It doesn't have any retrospective jurisdiction, only crimes that happened after its establishment. But it has already addressed uh, examples of cultural destruction, such as uh, the uh, sites in Timbuktu that uh, were destroyed. Um, and it's looking at uh, Syria and Iraq and a number of other places. And I've actually been invited to a couple of uh, meetings and uh, invited to comment on their strategy for uh, prosecuting crimes against culture. So I, I think culture has become something that people are concerned of in times of conflict. You asked very early on, you know, what's the point of looking at, at crimes against culture when there are so many horrible crimes against people, thousands of people killed, millions of people displaced. Well, the, the thing is that these people are, for the most part, being persecuted because they're members of specific groups. They're singled out on the basis of their cultural characteristics. So race, religion, ethnicity are all basically cultural constructs. And so targeting their culture is targeting the group of people. You do this to terrorize people, to make sure they'll never come back, to promote a false narrative that they have never been here. And the Nazis did that in World War II. It happened in the Balkans and it's happening elsewhere. And so addressing culture is vital to addressing the protection of groups against persecution, against genocide and war crimes. Um, you know, look what happened to the Yazidis in Iraq. Look what happens at any persecuted group. It invariably involves the destruction of culture. And, um, you know, it's unfortunate that it took the uh, humanitarian disasters of the 90s and the 2000s to bring this into focus, but it actually goes back much further. So to uh, sort of uh, end on a, I guess maybe a more, more positive note, uh, just thinking ahead, uh, you, you know, we, we were chatting before this interview of that uh, you've now been almost a year into retirement and and uh, unfortunately, because of the COVID pandemic, it's been difficult to, to really uh, travel and do things that people hope to do during retirement. But um, we were just wondering, what, what are some of your plans uh, uh, moving forward? Do you, do you hope to, yeah, please. Okay, well, I, I continue to um, write and lecture on the things that uh, I know something about, whether it's Ottoman history or uh, cultural destruction. Meanwhile, the material I gathered for the tribunal is uh, now uh, housed in the Harvard Library as one of their archival collections. So it's available for research and people still go on uh, contacting me from all around the world, asking questions about these things. So I, I don't think the topics will go away. 
I do have uh, projects, some of which I laid aside in the early 90s because I got too busy on the Balkans that I would like to pursue again. And, um, you know, one benefit of the retirement is that you do have more control of your time. And uh, so uh, writing and research are not something that you do after dinner. You can do it uh, when, at, a, at a more reasonable pace. Um, you know, I still have access to my colleagues. I have access to uh, the collections of the library. And uh, I, if health holds out, I, I, I hope to do it more in the future. You can find more information about Andrasha's work at the Harvard Fine Arts Library and on cultural heritage preservation in the Balkans by clicking on the link to our website in the show notes. To learn more about the history of Islamic studies at Harvard, visit our digital timeline at timeline.islamicstudies.harvard.edu. You're listening to the Harvard Islamica podcast. I'm Mariam Kazmi. Thanks as always for joining us. Thank you.